0: You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. We love information in our day. We live in a world of information. We have a bounty of it at our uh, disposal constantly. Uh, and it, that's just not true for facts about Papua New Guinea or how to cook a filet mignon or Alexander the Great, uh, though it is true for those things, but in fact it's true about theology. In some ways we are living in the richest age of theological history that the world has ever known. We have more access and more resources to knowledge about God or the things of God or what has happened in the past as it relates to Yahweh, the Christian God that we worship. Um, It is amazing how much information is out there. And when we think of knowledge and we think of conveying knowledge, we should think of Jesus who was the wisest sage to ever live. Uh, And His manifesto, which is the Sermon on the Mount, is this beautiful retelling of how the world actually works. So one would think that Jesus, the wisest sage to ever live, in explaining His life, and his death, and his resurrection would have given us a theological lecture of sorts, uh, some type of dissertation. He would have talked and explained over and over and over again about why he had to die. But he actually doesn't do that. In fact... Besides one point in Mark where he explains that he must die as a ransom for many, the only time that Jesus gives a thorough reasoning about why he was going to die according to the four gospel accounts is when he gave us a meal. He didn't write a book or give a thousand lectures, all those are good, I like all those things. Uh, But it's not what he gives us. He explained his body and his blood when he sat around the table and offered food. He transformed an annual feast with an innocent lamb at the center into another celebratory meal about another innocent lamb, and we call this the Lord's Supper. We specifically are concerned about knowledge. Knowledge is good, but we are purely and primarily concerned about knowledge. Jesus is purely and primarily concerned about His presence that is informed, of course, by knowledge. And over the last several weeks, we have hit on various themes, first talking about the story of food throughout the Scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation, then focusing on the distinction between the altar and the table and how those are linked, but they're not the same. And today we move to the actual Last Supper, uh, and when I say Last Supper, most of you have an image that comes to your head. You probably have seen something at some point that has cemented what the Last Supper looked like. Most of you probably have been informed by this picture. This picture is a picture of Leonardo, or this is, this is a uh, Leonardo da Vinci masterpiece. Everyone knows this photo as the photo in talking about the Last Supper. However, that's not what it was like. So don't get that picture in your head. In fact, remove it from your head uh, because that has nothing to do with first century Judaism. Instead, you should substitute this picture. This is called a triclinium. It was a table low to the ground, a semicircle, had kind of three beds. Uh, and Jesus would have been at the head or at the, ta- at the center of the table. And in the Greco-Roman world uh, we just read the Scripture reclining at table, uh, which actually means what it says. They would recline at the table so their feet would be facing toward the wall and their upper body would be facing more towards the table, and they would recline at the table based on the order of importance. So when you picture the Last Supper, I don't want you to picture this grand banquet hall with this massive table and all of these disciples around it. I want you to picture this sort of uh, low to the ground, very modest uh, table, stone table. Uh, It's a much more accurate depiction of what it was actually like. Um, And for the next few minutes, I want to walk us through some of what may have been experienced at the Last Supper. Much of the content and history I'm going to share actually comes from a man named Tim Mackey, who is the overseer of the Bible Project. If you are not familiar with the Bible Project, you are now familiar with it, um, and you should familiarize yourself with it greatly. It is an unbelievable resource, uh, and uh, much of what he has done as a Hebrew, a, really a leading Hebrew scholar, Uh, has broken down so many things, and the Passover meal is one of those. Um, So I wanna give him credit, not that he'll ever listen to this, uh, but because this idea and format is not original to me. So I have invited Zach and Bill to come up here and be my props. So while this is, not, uh, this is not a table low to the ground, it is what we have uh, and it is what we're going to deal with. Now for some of you, you may have participated in this before but the disciples at the Last Supper were celebrating Passover. Um, perhaps some of you have participated in what is called a Seder meal and the Hebrew word for Seder is order. The meal is ordered and broken up into various parts. Now, I know this is going to be difficult, but as best as possible, try and situate yourself as a first century Jew and specifically a first century disciple of Jesus who is eating a meal that has been passed down to you for 1,500 years, okay? So this is a very uh, important and uh, critical and annual meal that celebrates something over the lifetime of Israel as a nation. So, first, there is, there is a cup. Um, and Bill, if you can pass me yours. Uh, typically, at Passover, they would pick the choicest wine. Um, I didn't know who would be up here, so I chose Kroger's grape juice, um, which will be a great substitute for us. Um, So before you would drink the cup, and actually I'm gonna pour myself one as well. Before you drink the cup, they would actually say a blessing. Typically, they would sing the blessing. I'm not going to do that, um, but that's what they would do. And what's interesting is in Jewish tradition, they would not bless the food Nor would they bless the drink because they already believe that the food and the drink are part of God's created order and world and therefore do not need blessing, they would therefore bless God. It's ironic that in the Christian tradition we feel like we have to bless the food and the drink that we intake, I think subconsciously because we're not entirely sure or convinced Uh, that it is actually blessed by God. Uh, But in fact we know from Genesis 1 and 2 that food is part of God's good creation and therefore in many ways does not need blessing. So the blessing would go something like this, may you be blessed Lord our God, King of the world who creates the fruit of the vine. So the meal would begin and the first thing you would do is grab a lettuce leaf. So if you all grab a lettuce leaf. And then you would dip it into what is called the carpas. So the dipping of the carpas, which is the, um, the water liquid you have. So if you all go ahead, dip that, swirl it in there, get it nice and, nice and wet. Um, and, then, uh, and then you can take a bite. All right. What does it taste like? Or what does it, yeah, what does it taste like? Salt water. Salt, salt, yes. So what is the dipping of their karpos? And a lot of times at this point in the meal, the kids around the table would be asking, why are we doing this? What is karpos? We don't do this at any other meal. What's the big deal? And there are many different interpretations, um, but the oldest is the story of Joseph. His brothers don't like him. And then they complain to murder him, but instead instead decide to sell him into slavery and convince their father that he was killed by a wild animal. And so they take his coat and they slit a lamb and they dip the coat into the blood and give it to their father, uh, all the while selling. Joseph into slavery. And that for 1,500 years, again, there's many interpretations, but this is the oldest one. And most scholars think it is probably the most original one, um, which was telling the story of how did the Israelites even get down to Egypt? And this is how it starts. And so we dip the carpas. This meal is supposed to remind us of a story that we find ourselves in—a bigger story, um, a story of our exodus from Egypt—and so the saltiness is supposed to replicate what it tastes like when you bite your lip, and it starts to bleed. It's a little salty. It's a, almost a tad bitter, uh, and so it's—it says physical reminder of this kind of salty taste that we have in front of us as we think about and recall the fact that we were enslaved in Egypt. So for the next 45 minutes or so around the table, usually the head of the table uh, would tell the story of the Exodus. So God called a man named Abraham and through a series of events, his line, his sons and his wives and children would make their way down to Egypt where Joseph already was because of famine The people would go and they would thrive there, they would multiply there, and they would become great in number. They would become so great that Pharaoh would view them as a threat. And so instead of them living among the Egyptians, he enslaved them uh, and made them hard slave laborers. Um, God would raise up a man named Moses who would grow up under the nose of Pharaoh, who would then grow up to advocate for the Israelites to be set free from this oppression. And Pharaoh would not have any of it, so they cried to Yahweh who would deliver them, both through His mercy and justice, which we will get to, and this meal celebrates that day. And so at the conclusion of the Exodus story, to commemorate the telling of the story, we would raise our second cup and we would actually sing the great Hallel, which is Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Now, again, we're not going to sing that, but in light of that, I want you to respond as you see the prompts, okay? This is Psalm 113. Praise Yahweh. The name of Yahweh From the place where the sun rises to the place where it goes down. Name For Yahweh is high above the nations. Who can be compared with Yahweh our God, who is enthroned on high? May you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world, who creates the fruit of the vine. The next phase would be the unleavened bread or bread that is not risen. When yeast is in bread, it takes a long time for the bread to rise. Unleavened bread can be made quickly. You roll it out flat, you put it in the oven, and you eat it. And this is a rich reminder of the haste in which the Israelites fled Egypt. They needed to have food for the road. There was no time for the bread to rise because they needed to be ready to go. And so every year the unleavened bread tells part of the story that at the sound of Yahweh's voice, they would leave. But in the last supper, this meal becomes a pivotal moment. So he blesses God with a blessing. May you be blessed Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. And then you all can break that bread Uh, And so it says this, then he took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So you would eat it. At this point, the disciples are probably looking around wondering what in the world is going on. Because initially they're, they're, they're being given this bread and you would think that Jesus would reiterate that the bread is about the haste uh, which the Egyptians, uh, or of which, which the Israelites fled Egypt. But he literally turns it around and said, this is my body broken for you, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, like he often does, takes the story of the past, locates it in the present, and then points to the future. And Luke's account is so rich because we see how Jesus said the bread is given for you. It is something that they would receive. Uh, It is not even for Jesus, it is for them, and now it is for us. And Jesus takes the elements of the earth and says, like this, that was birthed from the earth and has died and now gives you life, so it will be with me. And bread was a staple in ancient Near Eastern culture. Every meal had bread around it to remind us. Jesus uses this specific metaphor to remind us of the critical sustenance that he provides us. So we would eat the unleavened bread. And I imagine, again, there's a lot of confusion around the table, but let's keep going. So we would go on to the bitter herbs. This comes from the part of Exodus 1 where it reads, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The Hebrew word for bitter is marar, which is why we eat the maror, the bitter herbs. Um, Particularly the bitter, bitter uh, sting of what we're going to eat. So if you all take another piece of lettuce, um, and if you will dip it in that sauce, get it real good in there, Bill. That's just, that's a dab, Bill. Okay, all right, okay. Okay, so eat it. Uh, what, is, what does it taste like? Horseradish. Uh, yes, horseradish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're, you, you should be grateful because I did not give you raw horseradish, um, which is actually more uh, in line with what they would be eating, particularly because the point of the bitter herbs is to make you cry. Um, it is actually to physically bring tears to your eyes. Um, it was a reminder of sin and death that happened to them, um, particularly the sting of the firstborn of the Israelites being slaughtered. Um, so it is not supposed to be this enjoyable thing that you long to eat. It's actually meant to be bitter, to remind, for your body to remind your soul of the story of the bitterness of Egypt. And then they would begin to eat the lamb, a land that would have been slaughtered by a butcher. And the question becomes why was this part of the meal? Well the tenth plague was a reversal of God to Egypt. So what Egypt had done to the Israelites in taking the firstborn God was going to do to the Egyptians in the tenth plague and the israelites to be saved from this atrocity would go out they would kill a 1-year-old lamb they would paint the blood of the lamb over the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over their house yahweh like he always does provides a way out he provides mercy so we then take the third cup and bless it may you be blessed lord our god king of the world who creates the fruit of the vine. And then we read, and likewise the cup, after they had eaten, they take it and he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And the past Passover becomes the present Jesus that points to a future covenant. A lamb would be struck open, thus providing food for the Israelites as a reminder of their freedom from slavery, and another lamb would be struck open, but this time his blood would be a reminder of the new freedom from their more insidious slavery. All right, guys, you gonna have a seat. Thank you. Now, again, there is a lot more to this actual meal, Um, and we don't have time to go through it all. But um, there's some interesting cultural history here, and I I think it's important as we kind of progress through the Last Supper to now what it means for us to take the Lord's Supper to think critically about that history and what it means for us and how should we approach that. Um, But if all we get is history, we have just greatly missed it. Through the Lamb, Yahweh rescues the Israelites from slavery to Pharaoh. This is celebrated every year for 50, still people celebrate it today. 1,500 years, this is what the Israelites celebrated, where food tells the story of their story. And Jesus steps on the scene, transforms the entire meal from a story about a past exodus of a dictatorship to a story about a current exodus and a future exodus from the kingdom of darkness and sin and selfishness and pride and lust and violence and greed and consumerism and individualism and death itself. Through the Lamb, Yahweh rescues the world from slavery to sin and death. This is the meal. This is the story. It's one of massive celebration and deep sobriety. It is the meal for all time. The symbols are the bread and the cup, and they will be constant reminders that you will digest into your body, and the Spirit will use them to remind yourself of the promise that God has made with you, that He is God, that there is no other, that you belong to Him, that He went through death itself to win you back. And I think part of the challenge with the way we typically think about Lord's Supper is we are convinced that purely cerebral memory recall of what Jesus has done for us is enough to captivate our souls. God literally wired the world not that way. He wired us to be people, to be whole body, whole person people and consume something to remind ourselves what Jesus has done for us. And part of the challenge with the bread, the, the, the kind of the cracker and the cup mantra that we use now is, to be honest with you, I don't think it has enough, um, it doesn't feel whole. It feels like we're, we're, we're missing something significant when we spend two to three minutes on something that has changed the trajectory of the entire world and has just changed the trajectory of our entire lives. And so it becomes this very regular, no longer an annual meal, but it's a meal that we take very, very seriously and very, very regularly. Um, And so as we go forward, we're going to talk about some of the historical trends of what has happened in the early church to now. Um, some of the theological implications of the Lord's Supper, if you go back 500 years, one of the big, big splits in the Protestant and Catholic Church was around the Lord's Supper. It was about the table and we're going to talk about some of the nuances there and some of the ways to uh, agree and then disagree. Um, We're also going to talk about the fact that it's a meal around a table, which means it involves other people, it's this community, family element. Uh, the The two things you cannot do as a follower of Jesus by yourself, you cannot baptize yourself, and you cannot take communion by yourself. Two of the practices the early church gave us to remind us of life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you cannot do by yourself. Lone Ranger Christianity is running rampant in our culture, and we have a moment and opportunity to recapture the family dynamic that is the kingdom of God. This is more than mental, a mental exercise in remembering. This is the dinner at which the Israelites celebrated their freedom from the outside world, which was Egypt. And now we celebrate the freedom from what is eating us all alive on the inside, which is sin and darkness and death. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for the elements that you have given us to remind us of your life, death, and resurrection. We need those reminders desperately because tomorrow we're going to forget. And we need the outpouring of grace and mercy in our lives. You have given us your spirit. Lord, help us, grow us in our sensitivity to him. He is even advocating for us right now. That should ignite and energize our hearts. Lord, make it so. Make it so. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we are going to transition a little bit of a hard left. Um, a few announcements, and then I'm going to hand it off. Uh, the first announcement is this. Uh, we've got, as usual, our weekly email. Would you all sign up for that and get our mode of communication, how we communicate? Um, although, you will learn, it's not... Um, even, even, even the email. Even the communication you can control is not always perfect. Um, so, which brings me to the single moms ministry update. So, the, uh, we, we were going to do a final, uh, the, the last Friday of the month event uh, for our single moms, the community. We are still planning on rolling that out In the coming months, but Knox County has run into a bit of a snag with background checks, people coming in that are not employed by the school that are, uh, yeah, they're doing back, they have to have everybody background checked. And so that's not gonna happen in time for this Friday. And so we're going to pause on the event itself. However, just because we're not hosting an event doesn't mean that we can't creatively care for single moms um, in our community. And so more information on how we're gonna do that in the coming days. Uh, but if you remember kind of what we did around Valentine's Day, we kind of dropped off various um, gift baskets and just really things of encouragement to our moms. Um, We're gonna do something similar uh, in the coming days. So again, be on the lookout for that, but we're going to hopefully roll out the event itself coming in October. Um, Childcare, which we're going to, I'm going to give off to Lauren uh, because we need you in childcare, we need you to be a childcare volunteer, um, but we only can have you do that if you're Safe Kids trained. So we're going to intentionally um, stop a little bit early so all of you in this room right now can become Safe Kids trained. Uh, that's, that's how we do that. So you all are just gonna stay seated and not move. Um, and I'm gonna have Lauren come up here and she is going to, um, You can do whatever you want, wherever you're comfortable. That microphone microphone is working, yes. Yes, it's great. Give me just one second. Talk amongst yourselves. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.